Hi, I'm Harish Dowda. I'm a GP based in Canberra at Next Practice Deakin and Prestantia Health. And I'm going to be talking about age-friendly health systems and our implementation of it in primary care in the ACT. Hi, I'm Bianca Forrester. I'm also a GP. Um, my role is I'm Clinical Lead of Innovation and Learning at the Western Victorian PHN and Senior Lecturer in Primary Care at the Department of General Practice, University of Melbourne. Um, and I'm going to be talking about COVID-19 pandemic response and how we took our response activities, our community of practice, and built a learning health system in our region. Both of your presentations at the Quality um, Forum in Melbourne are looking at implementing new systems within primary care. Um, so could you just tell me a bit about these um, systems that you've tried to set up within primary care? Prash, tell me about the age-friendly healthcare system for housebound people. With, with the workload pressures on general practice, fewer and fewer GPs are doing home visits now. Um, yet we've got a population that's growing older, increasing frailty. For many of these people, getting out, even if it's to see a GP in a practice, is really quite burdensome. And so some people were going without care uh, or without comprehensive primary care. And we wanted to make sure that the care we provided, you know, the model of care we provided was um, evidence-based, um, make sure um, it, it was sustainable as much as possible. And so we started to look at the research around this and identified the age-friendly healthcare systems work that was being done in, in, in the US. And it's a really simple approach. It's an approach which kind of takes a um, in, in the US, a 4M approach, and I'll describe the four Ms. We adapted it slightly to include a fifth M. And, and so it really starts with what matters to the individual. So it's really about person-centered medicine, focusing in on what, what's important to that person, which is really important in the context of multimorbidity and frailty. And, and so that's what we start with in the framework. We use patient-reported measures to help support that. So we measure things like loneliness, promise 10, carer burden, you know, those sorts of things um, to try and understand that. We look at medication. So polypharmacy is a big part of what, what affects this group. Um, so the second M is medication. And, and we look at that, we look at a team-based approach, look at the opportunities for optimizing medication, but also work with the philosophy of less is more sometimes. And so we're looking for opportunities to de-prescribe as well. Mobility is an, an important third M. So the ability for people to move around and maintain a level of independence um, is, is really important for this group, even if it's moving around the house. And, and so, you know, the third M is about a structured assessment, looking at mobility, and then taking actions as a result of our findings. The fourth M is around mentation. And here we're looking at Three things in particular, we're looking at mood disorders, so depression, we're looking at cognitive dysfunction, so maybe dementia, and, and we're looking at delirium as well and screening for that. And again, using structured tools to do that, and based on our findings, then appropriate interventions. And then the fifth M, which we added in, was around malnutrition. So again, you know, diet and nutrition is really important for, for this group. So systematically, again, assessing the nutrition, the diet, identifying where that might be suboptimal and then trying to improve that. So 
using uh, an evidence base around the 5M framework to first and foremost assess using evidence-based tools and then act on the findings of that assessment and doing that you know, using reliability science, a quality improvement approach to make that happen reliably. Bianca, did you want to just summarise um, the regional primary care learning health system and maybe talk a bit about how COVID-19 led to that as well? So I guess the key question that led to our intervention was how does primary care adapt their practice in the face of a pandemic crisis? So how do we help bring um, clinicians together to make sense of a novel virus and the new technologies? And how do we consider our current care more, you know, pre-2020 care models so that we continue to, can continue to provide safe and effective and high-quality healthcare in the face of the social distancing restrictions. Going forward, as we move from our pandemic response, and I'll tell you a bit more about that in a moment, how do we continue, I guess, to now adapt in the face of ongoing uncertainty and potential other um, you know, crises to come in the future? So how do we create a system that's resilient and can um, handle things like reform, transformation and perhaps um, upcoming crises. So um, so what we did was back in March 2020, uh, we, we started off as a community of practice to kind of move and mobilise knowledge. Um, we brought um, clinicians together, um, primary care clinicians, the clinicians from a health sector, experts in, in infectious diseases and public health. And um, we facilitated a weekly dialogue. We'd curate the, um, you know, all the information, the latest policy advice, the um, data, uh, any infection controls we could get our hands on, and every week set an agenda um, where we try to build an, a, vision, a vision of um, what needed to happen that week and what needed to change and how we might go about doing that. What happened over time is that we recognised that these sessions were really valuable to clinicians and they felt that they could uh, really access our community of practice as a weekly one-stop shop. Um, and we found that what happened over time is we developed um, really trust, a trusted dialogue where people felt safe to bring cases, discuss cases and think about really those really tricky, sticky questions about how to put policy into practice in regional primary care. So how do we set up our waiting rooms? How do we, um, you know, manage to create the safety for both patients and clinicians? And how do we deal with this constant nature of change that was um, really our reality, wasn't it, um, Paresh, across 2021 and 22? Um, we found this method actually was really effective. And so what we recognised we were doing was managing knowledge. So we were bringing um, people together to really pull apart um principles, practices, and build new practices. And then we'd code those practices into um, COVID health pathways. So the primary health networks um, run health pathways. We had a clinical editor in our group that would then code a lot of what we described into our health pathways. Um, and then we'd create broad comms so that it um, reached most of our region so that everyone was up to date with the changes. And over time, we ended up um, being able to set up a series of systems interventions in response to kind of what was needed on the ground. GP hotlines, referral mechanisms to specialist immunisation centres, and we were able to commission into gaps, recognise areas where we could see there were LGAs with low vaccination rates and build novel models to try and access those who um, were more at risk. Um, and so it ended up being quite a, a you know, quite a um, successful intervention and we had great rates of um, vaccine rates, great antiviral prescribing rates. Um, and we just kept rolling with the changes, if you like. But over time, we recognised that, you know, change for all of us was quite tiring. 
and um, we needed to probably slow things down. So we developed some a systematic approach to the way we worked. We created formal structures around knowledge management, change management, and started to get our head around how do we manage the data that we're really working with. And uh, as we then took that time, I guess, that we had a bit of a breather, probably only really middle of last year, um, we started looking into the literature and identifying there was actually this uh, system, if you like, that responded to these challenges of um, moving, mobilising knowledge, translating it into practice, improvement cycles as such, and that is the um, literature around the learning health system concept. So the learning health system is a, a global concept. It's been gaining traction and we've been working in the last 12 months to think about and reflect upon how our activities align with that conceptual framework. Um, and that's really what our work is today. So we've been able to move from tackling um, COVID-19 into looking at other communicable diseases, Hep B, STIs. We've moved into um, sexual and reproductive health and focused on other sticky, tricky problems uh, in the health system. And I was just reflecting as you were describing your model, Paresh, you know, something like a learning health system might be the way in which you might bring clinicians together to um, really think about adapting and, and responding to our new practice, good practice, that our best practice, and how might they integrate that into their workflows. So it's very much a change management tool um, and a way of really bringing people together for workforce and development and quality improvement. It's, it's, it's really interesting because we've kind of used the learning health system approach. So, you know, thinking about data to knowledge, knowledge to practice, practice to data, which is kind of the overarching concept around learning health systems. And actually, the whole implementation of the age-friendly health system approach in primary care has been very much ar around that, you know. So looking at what, what data we had, what were the gaps in care, um, identifying the opportunities ar ar around that, um, and, and then looking at how can we plug those gaps. Um, so that's that data to practice part. Um, and, and then as we've been doing it, monitoring, using very much a quality improvement sort of methodology um, around, you know, that practice and starts to inform the data. And we're now sort of going, going around in an iterative way, um, very, very much using a learning health system concept. It's interesting, isn't it? I think that, you know, as you describe, what I recognised as we came out of our activities was really turning, moving from data to knowledge or data through information and knowledge and knowledge to practice. I think we, we're really familiar with doing this in our, in our professional worlds. Um, but I think what's really new to us is moving, is really pushing around that cycle, that practice to data. Really, this is the piece that's uh, very new and I'm excited to hear that you've managed to do that because what we've recognised is that when you do try to close the loop, uh, you know, you find the weak links in the chain or the pieces that maybe uh, are a little more challenging to lean into. And I think it's been really good to, as a as a collective, really try to lean into some of those difficult spaces because I guess any system's only as strong as its, you know, weakest link. This is a bit of a journey. Like I couldn't put my hand on heart and say, yeah, we've implemented aged care friendly systems. We're implementing it and we're learning as we do and we're refining all the time. So even today I had a meeting with our project manager this morning and we said you know what I think we need to just put put aside an hour to just revisit and reflect on where we've got to um collectively so we can we can think about you know the next two three months and what we need to prioritize and and so it, it is a bit of a journey to type of philosophy that we keep revisiting looking iterating seeing how 
that works. And I think, you've, as you say, you've got to change your practice, you know, to recognise it as a dynamic, a dynamic process because I think kind of perhaps before the pandemic we really did think in these linear ways or we wanted to see these outcomes or these projects end and even though we knew we were operating in complex systems, I think we couldn't help but to characterise things with beginning and end points. But I think the thing that the pandemic has kind of taught us is that uh, we're constantly changing and adapting and we somehow have to find ways to adjust to the nature of that and the nature of change and the nature of mm, being agile, being responsive, being reflective, as you say, and create uh, new methodologies, if you like, that, that invite those improvement cycles, that reflective practice. I wondered if either of you um, had come across any barriers to implementing you know, either of these systems in primary care. Are there any challenges that we need to be aware of and how did you overcome those? Data is is a really important part of this, just knowing whether you, you know, achieving what you've set out to achieve. And, and so having our clinical systems be able to extract that data in an intelligent way that makes helps us make sense of it is really important. But you know, regrettably, none of the clinical information systems seem to have that inherent capability to be able to, you know, code the data we want to be extracting and analyzing um, in, in a way, you know, which, which we can do um, as part of our clinical service delivery, as part of our operational model. We almost need to invent and, and have, you know, create multiple spreadsheets and things to try and make up for the lack of technology capability in this area. So I would certainly say that's been a bit of a challenge. Part of our model of care is for many of the housebound people, we do have GPs visiting, but we also have a nurse employed in that role who who provides um, supportive telehealth, and we use advanced telehealth equipment, which allows us to conduct tele-examinations. So, you know, we can listen to hearts, lungs, look in ears, look at wounds, all virtually, but that requires a good internet connection in people's own homes. And even in the capital of Australia, the, the sort of 4G, 5G bandwidth is, is really patchy. And so that's been a particular barrier around technological innovation. You know, we, we're noticing workforce challenges across the board. And so being able to recruit at the beginning of the project the right sort of person with the right sort of skills for, for the project was, was challenging. And it took us a little while to... To, to get there, but you know, um, we, we were able to get there in the end. And 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 then, you know, our funding models don't really support different ways of working. Now that may change with the reforms coming, um, but that's probably going to be a slow process. So, you know, I think our reality is there's there's a number of complexities, challenges, some of which are system level. And, and, and that's a reality. And so we've got to innovate within that reality. Bianca, thinking about your sort of primary care learning health system, because it's quite an abstract sort of um, thing, I guess, or a system or structure. So if I'm a patient using, you know, primary care services, how does the regional primary care health learning health system benefit me? What are the benefits to me as a patient? We always start the learning cycle with a problem of interest. And so one of the recent ones that we've been tackling to really move beyond that COVID space has been um, 
issues that matter to patients. And what we did through um, the beginning of our uh, recent series was we interviewed um, a number of researchers, key experts in women's health and consumers to find out what mattered. And what we found was that actually persistent pelvic pain was a big issue, um, of which endometriosis is a small part um, or is a part of. And we recognised that was this broader um, concept of persistent pelvic pain that we wanted to try and understand uh, from our clinicians how they understood this problem. So if a patient did present to them, um, with pelvic pain that was lasting more than three to six months, you know, how could we help them um, manage this better in practice? And what came about as we ran this, um, we called it a sprint, although we call it a learning cycle where we start with a problem of interest, people with or at risk of persistent pelvic pain need access to prevention, intervention and support and care, but they can't or they face a barrier. What barriers do they face? And we start to puzzle that as a community um, what we recognised was that firstly um, a lot of people didn't think, know about that diagnosis, didn't know that you could actually diagnose that problem in primary care, that you don't know, wait, you don't need to wait to get to a gynaecologist to have a laparoscopy to potentially diagnose endometriosis to actually score a diagnosis of persistent pelvic pain. And that once we can kind of recognise that as an issue, there's a whole swathe of treatment options that we can actually provide in primary care and so then our series really focused on what can we actually do for people in the primary care setting? How do we work with allied team members? What might allied health team members be able to do? And how do we build models of care that are more responsive to what consumers actually need on the ground, um, rather than perhaps being driven by guidelines that are generated, um, you know, around a particular diagnosis that patients don't necessarily walk in with? We know that the average diagnosis of endometriosis may take up to a decade to achieve. So what can be done kind of in the meantime? And so it was a really interesting series. I think we all learned a lot and we all improved our practice. So you'll hear a lot of themes of workforce development here. But what also came about was that we built um, really, you know, great working partnerships across the tertiary sector with our new federal federally funded clinics, with the PHN guidelines group, with um, with our other educators, with broader community. And together at the end of a learning cycle, we're, we're working towards partnering agreements to be able to continue now to work towards some of the um, resolving some of the issues that were emerging as a result of that inquiry loop. So we might find that things that kind of came out of it was that if patients really want to access chronic disease management plans, but we also know from the data and the literature that often that's not offered or perhaps it's not practical in practice, that we start to really interrogate why and we start to try and build some localised system solutions that enable the women in our region to be more able to access um, those comprehensive care plans. Again, I agree with everything Paresh said. I think we face the same challenges and barriers. So really for us, as we enter this part of the loop, we recognise that it was going to be really difficult to, um, well, we have to put data extraction tools for our electronic medical records um, for this particular problem, uh, data quality would be low. There would be problems perhaps with coding, um, with recognising you know, on our database how many people suffer from this issue because it might not be coded correct, correctly. So equally, we're kind of limited. On the one hand, it's been in this incredible time of digital transformation and, uh, uh, you know, in healthcare. But on the other hand, I'd have to say that data technology and tools is probably my biggest challenge right now. And there's a lot of um, stuff that has to kind of catch up for us to be able to perhaps come back and, you know, over time, if we do this suite of interventions, measure that we've made the lives of consumers better in our region. Um, so there's still a lot of kind of challenges to face, but I think that what I would say and probably out of that story as I reflect upon 
that, that story in terms of the enablers are probably the people and culture and the fact that when um, you bring people together in an, in an inquiry um, that you actually uh, can solve problems, come up with kind of solutions and that you start to really drill down, especially if you involve consumers in the journey, um, to understand what really matters on the ground and start to try and really focus your um, collective resources and energy into things that make the day-to-day life of consumers better. So I want you to imagine you've just met me in the elevator on your way up to your presentation um, at Quality Conference in Melbourne. You've got about 10 seconds. You need to convince me that I have to come to your presentation. So why is it absolutely crucial that I come and hear you talk at the Quality Conference? Look, if there's one thing I'd suggest you come to is is our presentation, because what you'll hear about is, yes, age-friendly health systems and our learnings from implementing it. But those learnings can be extrapolated into so many other projects, which I think you'll find enormously useful, really about spread, implementation, scaling, and and also about technological innovation. So I think you'll get a lot out of it, not just learning about age-friendly health systems, um, but, but actually broader implementation issues. If you'd like to learn how primary care can come together as a system to tackle the challenges ahead such as reform transformation climate crisis future pandemics then we can tell you how we embedded a culture of innovation and learning to tackle these problems and how we're systematizing that approach so that others can do similarly to tackle whatever whatever the future holds Mm -hmm.